do want to encourage you now at this time, if you don't have a Bible, uh, to, to grab one. As we will be uh, making our way uh, through, well, a lot of the, the Gospels today, just to kind of really discover well, what uh, Palm Sunday is about and what Jesus is doing and where he's going and, and all of that. And like I said, we'll be doing that throughout the week. So when you do join us on uh, Monday evening, tomorrow evening, uh, have your Bibles uh, ready. I'm not really posting up verses on, on there. We're doing some verses today at the beginning uh, just, to, just to, well, just really for time's sake, because if we all looked up every verse, we'd be here till next Sunday, so, which I'd be okay with that, but someone will have to order pizza. Um, but uh, what Palm Sunday does, it begins uh, for, for us, it uh, begins the Passion Week. Uh, Passion Week is an eight-day week, so it starts today and ends on next Sunday, Resurrection Sunday. And you might be asking, well, why do we call it the Passion Week? What's the word, you know, passion? We have a different understanding in our minds of passion, don't we? Well, it really comes from Acts chapter 1, verse 3, but it comes from the, the, the King James Version, the old King James Version, Acts 1, 3. And it says this, to whom also he shewed himself alive after his passion by many infallible proofs, being seen of them 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. Uh, Luke, Dr. Luke, uh, is really discovered uh, 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 just uh, the, all the um, elements of the gospel and, and researched uh, the story of really the Jesus and the early church. And he has put this together and he says that all of that is to show, <coughs> sorry, that Jesus... Uh, when he was resurrected, was after his Passion Week, and all of that were in all those things were infallible proofs. But he uses the word passion, and you might have a New King James version today, and maybe it says suffering uh, in there. And the word is pasco. It does mean to be affected by something or to suffer in a negative way to be be affected. So Palm Sunday is kicking off this week. Now, how how so? Why does this day do that? And I've mentioned it. It's the triumphal entry of Jesus. Well, what does that mean? I mean, he just rode into a, a, a city. What, what's the big deal about that? Really what that is, is that uh, Jesus coming into Jerusalem was, was immensely significant because he was presenting himself to the nation of Israel as the Messiah. Now, Messiah, what is that? We don't use that a whole lot. We sing about Messiah sometimes. I bet you there's people sitting here going, but yeah, but what is the Messiah? Messiah is just... A, a, a Hebrew word, it's a transliteration of a Hebrew word that means uh, to, to anoint. Um, and so it's an adjective, actually, and it means anointed one, but the, it's from the verb to, uh, to anoint. And so it's first used, when we go back in Scripture, it's first used of, uh, of a king. Um, and funny enough, it's, um, it's Eliab, who they thought might be the king, but it was the, the other son, David. You remember that? And it's used of him as the Lord's anointed it's later used of the priests when it speaks of the anointed priests of Israel. And then later in Scripture, in Psalm 105, used of the prophets and the patriarchs, where uh, God says, don't touch my anointed one. But it later became applied to one particular individual, a coming one, an anointed one, or a Messiah, that would fulfill all three of those roles, the king, the priest, and the prophet. And Jesus has fulfilled all those three roles. You know, nowhere in, in Scripture can one do all those things. But Jesus was all those things, and he is all those things. So when you think about Messiah, you think, you think about that, but also think of this word, and the word is Christ. Because Christ is the Greek word that comes from the verb to anoint. So Messiah and Christ are synonymous. They both speak of the same thing. Maybe for some of you today, don't know, some of you watching from home, are surprised to learn that Christ is not Jesus' last name, okay? He's not Mr. Christ. He is Jesus the Messiah. That is what that means. It is a title. He is the anointed one. And when it came to Jesus' public ministry, there was a lot of speculation about who Jesus was, right? Because he had not openly declared himself to be the Messiah. Everyone wanted him to do that. They wanted him to come out and say, okay, hear ye, hear ye, everyone. Messiah is in town. Here we go. We're ready. Let's get this show on the road. Jesus doesn't do that. And so uh, you have to get your mind in, in, into the Jewish mind of, of before there was a Google search, okay, that you could sort of look up, now oh, this Jesus guy, what's, what's the deal with him, right? Um, before you had the New Testaments to read about Jesus, right? There was no way to go about 
at things to track his beginnings when Jesus was doing things. The only thing you could do was go, well, go up and ask him, right? Is this guy the Messiah? And people were talking about him. You think he's the Messiah? I don't know. You think he might be the Messiah? All these things are going on. So we have the scriptures, and we can go back, and we can trace his life. And when we do, it's absolutely clear. And I just want to set up that for you uh, today because they didn't have this, but we do. And I want you to go back with me in your minds to a little, little field outside of Bethlehem where there were some shepherds. Do you remember that an angel came to those shepherds and visited them? And this is what the angel said in Luke 2, 11. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Christ the Lord. So these shepherds in this field were told something absolutely amazing that Christ has been born, the Messiah, the long-anointed one, the, waiting, the coming one, is born. The shepherds, the shepherds know this. And then you might remember that uh, elsewhere, there were some wise men following a star, right? And they come to Jerusalem, and they say, where is this king of the Jews, right? We've been waiting for the king of the Jews. Where is he? And this alarms King Herod because he is the king. He doesn't want another king. And so Herod gathers together some priests and scribes, and they're trying to figure this out. In Matthew chapter 2, it gives us a description here in verse 4. And we had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together. He inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. He knew of a Christ, but where was he to be born? And so they said to him, in Bethlehem of Judea. For thus it is written by the prophet, this is the prophet Micah, but you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. So we learn that he is a king, king of the Jews, but a ruler, a ruler who would shepherd the people of Israel, this Christ, this Messiah. Later on, Jesus is uh, going to be taken as a baby into the temple uh, for a fun little operation. And Simeon is there. And Simeon, we're told, had the Holy Spirit upon him. And, and Simeon had a great uh, promise from the Holy Spirit. In Luke chapter 2, verse 26, it tells us this that it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit, that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ, right? He had a promise. You're going to see the Messiah before you die. And he's, you know, hanging around the temple. The Holy Spirit convicts him, really moves him to go to the temple on this particular day, and he runs into baby Jesus. In Luke chapter 2, verse 27, so he came by the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents uh, brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law. He took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation. Simeon knew the promise to see the Messiah. And in his mind, the Messiah meant salvation. You fast forward to the beginning of Jesus' ministry, and there's this guy running around, interestingly dressed, named John the Baptist, Right? And he's baptizing people, and people are following him because he's saying some uh, pretty revolutionary things. And so they start asking him, well, hey, are you the Christ? Maybe this guy's the Christ, right? He's, he's pretty, uh, you know, out there, and he's saying some things that maybe, you know, maybe he's the Christ. And he specifically says, I'm not the Christ. And we're, we're told that they're asking him, well, why do you baptize people if you're not the Christ? I mean, or the prophet or Elijah, like, why are you doing these, uh, these things? But John knew who he was. He knew that what he, he was the forerunner of the Christ, the one that would come and pave the way for the Christ. And so he answers such when they say, hey, what do you say about yourself? He quotes Isaiah 40, verse 3. He says, I'm the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, right? Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. So he pinpoints the fact that he is the one that's come before Jesus, and he knew his role, and that must mean that he knew that Christ must be close, Right? If he is there, if John's on the scene, then the Messiah must be close. And so in that time, you might remember that he's talking to them and he says, well, I baptize. Yes, I baptize with water, but there's one among you somewhere. If I'm here, he's out there somewhere. Who, there's one among you who's going to baptize you with, with fire, right? You remember that? But he also says, you know, he's coming after me and he's preferred before me. I'm not even worthy to unloose his sandal strap, right? He's greater than me. I'm just paving the way for him. But then he sees Jesus. He sees Jesus, and he says something pretty amazing in John chapter 1, verse 29. The next day, he says this, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who is prefer preferred before me, 
for he was before me. He said, this is the guy I was talking about. The guy was preferred before me, better than me. That's the one I'm talking about. He's him. So John basically pronounces Jesus as the Messiah, but, but Jesus doesn't do it. John does it. John says, that's the guy. And so John has his own followers. And so those followers now start to follow Jesus. And one of them is a guy named Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. And Andrew in John chapter one, verse 41 says this. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which is translated the Christ. Now, John tells us Messiah is translated Christ because John's not writing to Jews. He assumes the audience isn't going to understand uh, Messiah, right? And that's why you see a lot of things in John. You see him explaining feasts and explaining why they do these things because it's not really written for, for Jews. So he says, Andrew knew that, that that was the Messiah. We found him. And he was so excited, he went and told his brother, Simon Peter. But again, Jesus doesn't declare himself to be the Messiah. And so John the Baptist tries to pin Jesus down on that point, um, John's in prison, you might remember, and he sends out word to Jesus in Matthew chapter 11, verse 2. It says, when John had heard in prison about the works of Christ, that's significant, when he heard about the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples and said to him, are you the coming one or do we look for another? He's basically saying, did I get it wrong or are you the guy? Do you see what he's, he, he's waiting for the works. Now, why did he ask that? He asked that because he heard about the works. And what does Jesus answer? Yep, that's me, Mr. Messiah. I'm the coming one. No, he doesn't. You might remember, Jesus says, well, the blind see, the lame walk, the deaf hear, right? Dead are raised up. What's he say? Look at the works. Jesus is allowing his works to do the talking, and that's what he has been doing all through Israel. Let the works do the talking. And so people really don't know what to think because he won't just come out and say, all right, guys, all right, you have me. I'm the Messiah. I've been just trying to lie lie low here. Oh, instead, he just tries to get the feel for people. You might remember he's sitting around with his disciples. He says, um, who are people saying that I am? Remember that? And in Mark chapter 8, it's recorded for us, 28. So they answered, John the Baptist, but some say Elijah, others say one of the prophets. But he said to them, but, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered and said to him, you are the Christ, all right? You are the Messiah. What is, why does Peter confess that to him that day? because of Jesus's works. It's the works that cemented in their minds the miracles that Jesus was the Messiah. And it should have been obvious to everybody. And it's funny that it's obvious to some people, not to others. You might remember Jesus was passing through Samaria. He goes and sits by a well and runs into a woman there, right? And a woman comes up and he says, would you draw me some water? Now, all Jesus does with this lady is talk. He doesn't do a miracle. He doesn't say, you know, I'm thirsty, but hey, watch this, hold that bucket for a second right? Yeah, water, right? He just says, give me some water. But he, he just talks to her. And by the time he's done talking to her, you find this lady running into the city. And this is what she declares, John 4, 29. Come and see a man who told me all things that I ever did. Do you see her question? Could this be the Christ? Could this be the Christ? Do you see that's on everybody's mind? And her mind, that was a miracle because he just knew things about her that nobody else could have possibly known. And that's really the question that everyone begins to ask. This is what you have to get in your mindset, that the crowds are starting to ask this question among themselves. Could he be the Christ? Could he be the one? Possibly it's him. And in John chapter 10, we'll get there a little bit later, a bunch of Jews surround Jesus. They corner him. They said, all right, tell us plainly, <laughs> right? Are you the Christ? They just want to know. And he just keeps them in the dark. But you know what? Even the demons knew that Jesus was the Christ. In Luke chapter 4, verse 41, it's recorded for us. And demons also came out of many, crying out and saying, You are the Christ, the Son of God. And he, rebuking them, did not allow them to speak, for they knew that he was the Christ. You see that? He, he keeps them silent. Why does Jesus keep the demons silent? Why does he not directly answer the questions of all the people? Wouldn't that make everything simpler, right? He is the Messiah. Why not just come out and say, I am the Messiah? Here's the short answer. His time had not yet come. Jesus knows that from the moment that he goes and declares publicly that he is the Messiah, very shortly after that, he's going to die. The people don't know that. They have a whole different mind uh, and expectation of the Messiah. Jesus knows when he declares that, his time is very short. And so when he came riding into Jerusalem on Sunday, there was no longer any doubt in the minds of many of the Jews. That is what sealed it for them. He's basically declared himself to be the Messiah. So why does he finally do that? 
Why do we celebrate this day? Why did, what finally made that happen? That's what we're going to look at. We're going to look at the events that lead it up to the triumphal entry. Now, all four Gospels give us an account of this event. You know, we have four Gospels, but not all of the events are in all four. But this, all four are here. And I'm going to put it up for you just so you know where you can read these. It's Matthew 21, 1 to 11, uh, Mark 11, 1 to 11, Luke 19, uh, 29 to 44, and John chapter 12, 12 to 19. And when you read only Matthew, Mark, or Luke's account, it's really difficult to understand where all the people come from. Right? He writes, and there's just all these people there. And when you read John's account, that's explained, but it's difficult to understand where this donkey came from, right? It just says Jesus found a donkey and rode in. Now, I think it's more important that we understand the response of the people than we understand where the donkey came from. Uh, so we're going to read John's account. But at the end, we'll explain the appearance of the donkey. Don't worry about it. So let's turn to John chapter 12. John chapter 12. We'll read this account to begin with, and then we'll back up and kind of see how Jesus got here. John chapter 12, verses 12 to 19. <clears throat> John chapter 12, beginning of verse 12. The next day, a great multitude that had come to the feast when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him and cried out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. And then Jesus, when he had found a young donkey, sat on it as it is written, fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written about him and that they had done these things to him. Therefore, the people who were with him when he called Lazarus out of his tomb and raised him from the dead bore witness. And for this reason, the people also met him because they heard that he had done this sign. The Pharisees therefore said among themselves, you see that you are accomplishing nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word uh, to us today. Uh, Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to hear from you, uh, to dig into scripture and recount the steps of our Savior uh, that led up to this um, just momentous occasion, coming into Jerusalem, declaring Jesus to be the Messiah. Lord, I pray that you would just be with us today, that we would really, Lord, um, have sharp minds to understand all that Jesus did and said. Lord, to see truly how, uh, how brilliant of a strategist Jesus really was as he uh, walked about this uh, earth, that he orchestrated things uh, perfectly so that he would arrive at the exact moment that he needed to. Some fascinating things we get to look in today, Lord. We pray that your spirit would be with us, that we might understand your truth for your glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, to perhaps we'll back up a bit to John chapter 7. Uh, this is a good place to launch from uh, because Jesus at this point had grown more and more unpopular with the religious leaders. You can tell this by the very first verse of John chapter 7. It says, after these things, Jesus walked in Galilee. For he did not want to walk in Judea because the Jews sought to kill him. We'll look at a map a little bit later for something. But, uh, but if you remember the, the, the geography there, Galilee is way up in the north. And then you have the region of Samaria. And then you have Judea where Jerusalem was. And, and Jesus wasn't walking freely around Jerusalem or Judea. He was way up in Galilee. Why? Because there were Jews that wanted to kill him. So he wasn't, wasn't very popular with the, the leaders. And so from this point forward, his public ministry, Jesus is very careful uh, during these last six months of his life. In fact, the last six months really could be marked by three final trips to Jerusalem. If you kind of lock these into your head, this makes a lot of sense. There are three trips to Jerusalem, and why do males, young males make trips into Jerusalem? Usually it's for a feast, right? So they're centered around three feasts. You have the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Dedication, and then the Passover. That's a six-month span because you've got October to March, April time, Okay. That's the last six months of his ministry. Now, here in John chapter 7, Jesus' brothers are coming to him to convince him to go to Jerusalem for the feast. Now, you don't need convincing all the young guys, you know, went to the feast. But Jesus needed a little bit because he was hiding out a little bit in Galilee. He was staying away from Jerusalem. And they come up to him and they tell him, oh, you're going to, you know, go to the, the feast. And in verse 4, um, they, this is what they say. For no one does anything in secret while he himself seeks to be known openly. 
If you do these things, show yourself to the world. And what they're saying is, listen, you're out here, you're doing all these things, but you're in Galilee. You're in a backwater town, right? If you are trying to say something like, I don't know, you're the Messiah, you need to go on center stage and do it. You need to go to the central point of Jerusalem. What was the, the, the national symbol? It was the temple, right? It was Jerusalem. He says, go, go there and make yourself known. No one does it in secret. Do it openly. Show yourself to the world. Now, it's interesting that his brothers are asking him to do this uh, because they, uh, they were told here that they don't even believe in him. They don't even believe in him. What are they trying to do? Well, they're really just trying to test him a bit, right? He's done all these things. They think he's a little bit crazy. And if Jesus were to go into Jerusalem and declare this, and he's not the Messiah, well, it's going to be quickly found out. So they say, why don't you go there and, and, and do it? And it's interesting what Jesus says to them in, in verse um, 8. He says this, you go up to this feast. I'm not yet going to this feast, for my time is not yet fully come. There it is again, right? My time is not yet fully come. If I go there, like you say, and I openly declare myself to be Messiah, the end is going to come for me. But my time is not yet come. It's not time for the end. So you go up. I'm not going to yet fully come. But look at verse 10. But when his brothers had gone up, then he also went up to the feast, not openly, but as it were in secret. You see that? So Jesus is being very shrewd, very careful. No, I'm not going to miss this one. You guys go ahead and go. And then he goes in secret. He can't just openly go because he's being very careful of his actions during this time. And when he gets there to the feast, uh, he's discovered, and there's lots of people milling about, and uh, they, they want to know who he is. They, they are trying to get him to uh, confess uh, who he is. And they're even there discussing these things about Jesus. In fact, you go up to verse uh, 25. It says, some of them from Jerusalem said, is this not he of whom they seek to kill? Is this the guy? I mean, he's up in Galilee, but it looks like this is the guy. He's here. Verse 26, but look, he speaks boldly, and they say nothing to him. Do the rulers know indeed that this is truly the Christ? You see that? Everyone's assuming. He's, I think he's the Christ. Do, do they know he's the Christ? Why are they not trying to kill him? You see, there's all this buzz about uh, Jesus. And, uh, and even the ones that are sent uh, to, well, people are trying to take him. Some are even rest, sent to arrest him, like officers and whatnot. And you, you can see some of this light out, but I, I, we can't go through it all today. But look at verse 30. Uh, therefore, they sought to take him, but no one laid a hand on him because, there it is again, his hour had not yet come. His hour had not yet come. They couldn't just take him and do what they wanted with him. And even though some of these officers that came to arrest him, well, they go back empty-handed. You can see it in verses 45 on. Um, and so they're questioned. Why have you not brought him? In verse 46, the officers answered, well, no man ever spoke like this man. Right? We went to arrest him, but he started speaking. And we were like, wow, listen to this guy. And the Pharisees answered them, are you also deceived? Do you see this guy's getting to you? He's getting in your head. Do you really believe that this guy could be the Messiah? So that's what happens at this first feast. You see, Jesus goes there, and there's a little bit more of this talk, but they, they tried to grab him, right? They tried to, so he's trying to be careful. Now, Jesus stays in the region of Judea um, after the feast because that next feast is only a couple months. This one's in October, and the Feast of uh, Dedication is around December time, later December. So he stays in the region. And you can't read about it in John. You have to read about it in Luke's gospel, Luke chapter uh, 10. We're not going to look at all, all of it, but I do want to take you to one significant point because it really helps us with the chronology. It helps us with what Jesus is doing in um, Judea later on, and particularly in one place. In Luke chapter 10, verse 38, he makes us stop somewhere, and this is in Judea, so it's in the region there near Jerusalem. Now, it happened as they went, this is chapter 10, verse 38 of Luke. Now, it happened as they went that he entered a certain village, we're not told by Luke, and a certain woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, who um, sat at Jesus' feet and heard his word. But Martha was distracted with much serving, and she approached him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister had left me to serve alone? Therefore, tell her to help me. And Jesus answered and said to her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and troubled about many things, but one thing is needed, and Mary has chosen that good part which will not be taken away from her. Everyone knows that account. You remember that? This is the first time he meets Mary and Martha, and it says here, in a certain village, just in a certain village. Well, I can tell you what village that is. It's Bethany, because we're going to see it later, because this becomes a new stopping point for Jesus. He's made some friends here. And so anytime he's in the region of Jerusalem, 
Judea, and he needs to stay over somewhere, he stops in and sees their, his friends, Mary, Martha, and their brother, Lazarus. Now, it's important to find out because that'll come up later. So now we kind of go to the second, <coughs> excuse me, the second feast. It's a feast of dedication. And again, only John gives us the details of the feast of dedication. It's John chapter 10. So I know we're turning around a little bit. If you're in Luke, now go back to John. John chapter 10, verse 22 to 31 gives us the description of this feast. John chapter 10, verses 22 to 31. We'll just read through this bit here. Now, it was the feast of dedication in Jerusalem, and it was winter. Yeah, because it was December. And Jesus walked in the temple in Solomon's porch. And then the Jews surrounded him and said to him, how long do you keep us in doubt? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Now, I mentioned that this was going to happen, right? Now, Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. Do you see Jesus' answer? I have told you. How did he tell him? Through the works. But they're still asking him plainly. But you do not believe because you are not of my sheep, as I said to you. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. And here it is, I and my Father are one. And boy, when he sets that, that sets them off, because then the Jews took up stones again to stone him. Now, anytime you see that, that is just a Jewish reaction, right? They're angered, and they want to kill him in the Jewish fashion to stone him to death. And they pick up stones to kill him, but they don't because Jesus begins to talk some more, right? And he says, well, there's many good works I've shown you from my father, so for which of those works are you going to stone me? And he's debating them again. The Jews answered him saying, for a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy because you, being a man, make yourself God. See, that's why they want to stone him. And so he's debating with him. He's talking. When you get down to the end of this whole discussion, again, therefore, verse 39, they sought again to seize him, but he escaped out of their hand. So this was a sort of a close call, uh, you might say. They wanted to stone him. There's some de debate going on. They don't end up stoning him, but they did want to seize him, but he, he miraculously escaped. And what happens in verse 40 is very important. And he went away again beyond the Jordan to the place where John was baptizing at first, and there he stayed. Now, where is that? And this is very important. I'm going to put up a map to, to help you um, understand this. It's a little bit small for people way back there, I understand. But this is a helpful map to show sort of the uh, regions of, of, uh, of Israel. You got uh, Judea, if I can get my little light to work, hold the right way, is the brown, right, the brown area down here. Samaria is this kind of uh, bluish area. And then Galilee up, up here. And then Perea is this green and going right down the middle, from the Dead Sea to the, the, the Sea of Galilee, this is the Jordan Rift. There's a river that runs down. It's the Jordan River, okay? And, and so, so Jesus has gone to where uh, John was baptizing at first. Well, that's from John chapter 1. You just have to look back, and you can see that he was in another Bethany. It's called Bethabara, and it's in Perea. And there it is. It says Bethany, okay? Now, it's a different Bethany down here. There's another Bethany. There's a Bethany of Judea and a Bethany of Perea. And that's why this gets confusing. And remember how we talk about studying the Bible. It's important to know historical, right? It's important to know geographical because we can get lost, right? Well, this is why this is so important because Jesus has gone to Perea. He's gotten out of their jurisdiction is where he's gone. He is in a place where they can no longer uh, touch him. <coughs> we can keep the map up there for a minute. Now, what happens here is significant. You've got to go back to Luke chapter 13. Luke chapter 13. Again, this is part of harmonizing the gospels. Can we see what happens uh, here? Jesus is out of the reach, okay? Pharisees shouldn't be bothering him, but here we find Pharisees coming to Jesus in Perea, all the way out there. In chapter 13, verse 31, on that very day, some Pharisees came saying to him, get out and depart from here, for Herod wants to kill you. Now, how do we know that this is in Perea, because Herod Antipas is the governor of Perea, right? He governs this green area. He governs Galilee, all right? It is Pilate. Pilate, we know who Pilate is, right? He governs Judea, where Jerusalem is, and Samaria. It's Herod that governs Perea, and these Pharisees come up, and they say, you need to get out of here because Herod wants to kill you. Now, what is this? You guys, this, this is a ploy. They are trying to fake Jesus out, right? 
Herod doesn't want to kill him. And even if he does, what, what's he going to do? They want to get him out of the jurisdiction of Herod and back into the jurisdiction, not just of Pilate. Pilate represents Rome, of the Sanhedrin, the ruling body of the Jews, because they want to kill him. They want to stop him. And this is huge because they've gone all the way outside of their own uh, region to go to Jesus and try to trick him. And here's what I want to bring us to that launches this whole thing. He kind of answers them and says, yeah, I'm not going to fall for it. But look at verses 34 to 35. <coughs> oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones, those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. And assuredly, I say to you, you shall not see me until the time comes when you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, well, what did we just say here when the kids left holding up the palm branches? Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He's like, I'm not going to go back to Jerusalem until people are ready to say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Do you see this? This is, this is crazy, you guys. Jesus is saying something absolutely amazing. They want to kill him, the, the leaders in Jerusalem, right? That's why they're here in Perea trying to fake him out. And he says, well, I can't go back until the people are ready to say this. Well, how, when's that going to happen? When's that ever going to happen? Is that possible at all? Yes. Jesus uses one major event that changes everything. Do you know what it is? It was kind of hinted at in John's account of the triumphal entry. It's the resurrection of Lazarus. That changes the ballgame completely. Sorry for that usage. That's just American slang. Okay. But he uses the resurrection of Lazarus. That's in John chapter 11. Now, you can go back to John 11. We can't read the whole thing. But let me recap it for you just a bit because Jesus is in Perea for this as well. He hasn't moved. He's been lying low. He's in Perea. And look at John chapter 11, verse 1. Now, a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary and her sister Martha. We just read about them, didn't we? It was that Mary who anointed the Lord with fragrant oil and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. <laughs> this is a side note, but I just can't go by it because this is absolutely amazing. We went through John a couple years ago, but you should remember this point. At this point in John's gospel, we've not met Mary and Martha, all right, in John's gospel. But he says, oh yeah, it's that Mary who anointed the Lord with fragrant oil. Guess where, when, when John's going to talk about that? In the next chapter, chapter 12. So why is John saying in chapter 11, oh yeah, it's the Mary when he hasn't talked about it yet? You know why? Because John was written later, right? Matthew, Mark, and Luke had been written, had been circulated, had been read by everybody. And he knows that the reader's going to go through, okay, there's a certain man sick, Lazarus, Bethany, right? Town of Mary and his, oh, I wonder if it's that Mary who anointed Jesus, because that's a huge thing. Remember, he anoints with a hair, right, and wipes her hair. Like, they're reading, they're like, Who's this Mary? John accounts for that. He says, yes, I'm going to answer your question. It is that Mary who anointed the Lord with fragrant oil, but it doesn't happen yet. It's going to happen after this when Jesus goes back to where? Bethany. Amazing. But this only happens when you harmonize the scriptures together. It's fascinating. I'm getting all buggy about it. But anyway, you have Jesus here getting note from Mary, Martha, and uh, about Lazarus being sick. Verse 3, therefore the sisters sent to him saying, Lord, <clears throat> behold, he whom you love is sick right? You love Lazarus, he's sick. Wow. So Jesus, you know, he loves Mary and Martha, and he loves Lazarus. He loves them so much. In fact, verse 5 said, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. He loved them so much, so when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two more days in the place where he was. Because <laughs> that's what you do when you love someone, right? Lazarus is sick. And John said, yeah, he loves them, and so he stayed two more days. What kind of love is that, Jesus? Why, why did they send word to him all the way in Perea, right, that green area, from their town of Bethany. Remember, they're, they're in a different Bethany here. They're in this Bethany. And they send word all the way over here to get Jesus to come back, and he says, well, I'm going to stay two more days. The answer is in verse 4 there. This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. This is not, this is not about Lazarus. He said, this is about Jesus. This is about the Son of God. I'm gonna, this is not unto death. I'm going to raise that boy from the dead, and I'm going to use that to glorify myself. That's what he's saying. And that's why he waits two more days. And you remember, he, he finally comes into town. It's verse 17. When Jesus came, he found that he had already been in the tomb four days. So not one day, two days, four days he's been dead. Now, that's really significant from a Jewish standpoint because the Jews didn't seal the tomb until the third day. 
because they had this, this belief that the spirit would sort of reside around the body and perhaps the spirit might decide to go back in the body somewhere between one and three days. Maybe that could happen, right? So they didn't even seal the tomb until the third day, which would normally be some kind of a little bit of a cave and they'd roll a little stone in front of it. And that's not just for the rich people. You go to Israel, there's caves absolutely everywhere. You want to see a stone in a cave like that? You go to Israel, you'll see them everywhere. And what they would do is they roll that stone and they would just, you know, put a bunch of mud and, and stuff around it to seal it. Why would you want to seal a tomb when someone's been there longer than three days? You don't want to smell that stuff, right? The stench is going to come out, and you don't want to keep, you know, we don't want animals to go in either. So they would seal it. So Jesus makes sure that has happened. So he's four days dead. There's no way someone can go, oh, well, it was the spirit was just sort of laying low. And four days, Jesus goes back. And he, of course, comes across Martha. And as can be expected, she's quite disappointed in Jesus. But let me show you verse 18. Now, Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles away. That's important. It's close proximity. It's a Sabbath day's walk from Jerusalem. And many of the Jews had joined the women around Martha and Mary to comfort them concerning their brother. How could there be many of the Jews there? Because they're only two miles away from Jerusalem. Okay? There's a big crowd there. Verse 20. Then Martha, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, went and met him, but Mary was sitting in the house. Now Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Oh, that's, that's how you would feel, right? Jesus, you can stop people from dying. I've, I've heard you do. You can take a sickness away. Obviously, Lazarus was sick of something. And if you had been here, Jesus, you could have prevented that. She's really disappointed in him. And verse 23, he says to her, your brother will rise again. And she just takes that as to mean like, well, yeah, eventually, right, in the resurrection. That's how she responds in verse 24. Yeah, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Of course, that's going to happen. That's not very comforting, Jesus. Thanks very much. That's like when we go to a funeral, we say, oh, well, you'll see them again, right? That's what she's saying. And verse 25, Jesus says, no, you got it wrong. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And she said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the what? Christ, the son of God, who's to come into the world. So there you have it from Martha. She believes that he is the Christ, the Messiah. But there's also something she doesn't believe about him, right? That he couldn't raise someone from the dead. That's just too far. You can do all these miracles, but when someone's dead, they're dead. And when they're dead four days, they're dead and they're stinking dead. And that's what happens. Jesus says, no, I'm going to do it. And so goes on in verse uh, uh, 39. He orders the stone to be taken away. Take away the stone. And Martha, the sister of him who was dead, said to him, Lord, uh, by this time there's a stench for he's been dead four days. And Jesus said to her, did I not say to you that if you would believe, you would see the glory of God? And then they took away the stone from the place where the dead man was lying. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. And I know that you will always hear me. But because of the people who were standing by, I said this, that they may believe that you sent me. Ah, he's saying this because he wants them to believe that he is sent by God. He's the anointed one. Now, when he had said these things, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And he who had died came out, bound hand and foot with grave clothes, and his face was wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to him, loose him and let him go. Yeah, duh, because he's bound. You know, he's, you get a picture of this guy kind of just hopping out, right? And he can't see where he's going. And he says, untie him. And I'm really glad he said Lazarus, because if he didn't say, if he just said, like, come out, you'd have a whole bunch of people coming out of that tomb. Right? No, the other guy, okay, hold on. So he just says Lazarus. Let me just make sure we get the right guy here. Now, you have to understand the impact that this had on the people there. There was a huge crowd there. And verse 45 gives us a glimpse of that. Then many of the Jews who had come to Mary, remember, to mourn for her, and had seen the things Jesus did, believed in him. This is the turning point, you guys. This is two miles away from Jerusalem. He might as well have done it in Jerusalem, okay? Now he's got a crowd of people saying, this is amazing. Jesus is doing some amazing things. But some of the news got back to the Pharisees. Verse 46, so some of them went away to the Pharisees and told them the things Jesus did. And then the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered a council and said, what shall we do for this man works? He works many signs. And so they have a council together. And this is important to understand what's happening. This is the chief priests and the Pharisees. You're talking about the Sadducees and the, the Pharisees. You're talking about two people who hated each other. The Sadducees are the ones that, that basically owned the temple. Right? They're the ones that ran that national symbol, and that was all it was about for them. They believed in the Pentateuch and nothing beyond that. They didn't believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe in spiritual things, none of that. So they had the temple. The Pharisees, they had the what? Synagogues, right? Those are the guys that taught the law. Those are the ones that you would see going around and doing the prayers and all of that. 
And they hated each other, but here they're coming together because they both have one enemy, and it's Jesus. And so they have a council, and here's what they decide upon. This is a terrible idea. Verse 53, then from that day on, they plotted to put him to death. Now, what you have to understand is this. The plot, the plotted to put him to death, is that this. No longer are we going to just, like, get angry and try to pick up stones and throw stones at him, okay? They actually make reference to it earlier on in verse 48. If we let him alone like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and nation. If we just let him be like this, now everyone's going to start following him as the Messiah. This is what they're worried about. And if they follow him as the Messiah, well, they believe the Messiah would overthrow Rome. And if an uprising starts coming up, well, Rome's going to come away and destroy everything we have. And so we'll lose everything we have. So we've got to do something about him, all right? But if we do something about him and take him into our own hands and we stone him to death, everybody loves him and there's going to be an uprising. And so Rome's going to come and crush. You see what I'm saying? They're stuck between a wall and a hard place. They don't know what to do. So the plot is this. We got to get Rome to kill him. That's the plot. So no one, no one throws stones anymore. This is the plot. We've got we've a plot. We're going to get Rome to do the dirty work. That's the idea. And so they issue this command in verse 57. Now both the chief priests and the Pharisees had given a command that if anyone knew where he was, he should report it that they might seize him. So this is the command. You've got to get this guy, and we've got we've to, um, you know, uh, if you see him anywhere, we've got to put an APB on him, and we're going to get him arrested. So that's the plot of Jesus. It's hatched right here. Now, where, where is Jesus when all this is going? Well, John leaves him in a place called Ephraim. Look at verse 54. Therefore, Jesus no longer walked openly among the Jews, but it went away from there into the country near the wilderness to a city called Ephraim, and there remained with his disciples. So Jesus has gone right here, a little town right on the border of Samaria and Judea. Jerusalem's way down here. So he's gone up there uh, to get away from the hullabaloo, and he's lying low there. In the meantime, you got people going crazy. Verse 55, the Passover of the Jews was near, and many went from the country up to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves, and they sought Jesus. Why are they seeking Jesus? Because they've heard about the miracle of Lazarus and spoke among themselves as they stood in the temple. What do you think? That he will not come to the feast? Everybody wants to know, are we going to see this Jesus? And then you look at verse 9 of chapter 12, and it says this amazing thing. It says, a great many of the Jews knew that he was there, and they came, not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might also see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. You see, that the country's all abuzz. People are coming early to Jerusalem to purify themselves, and the, the news is getting around. Right, Jesus, he's going to, and in and, and verse 9, we find out, well, he is here. He's going to come. Now, how do they... How do they know that? Because John has left him in Ephraim. And in fact, this gets more confusing because in verse 1 of chapter 12, we find out that six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus was, who had been dead when he had raised him from the dead. So, so Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. Everyone goes crazy, and he goes and hides in Ephraim. All right? Now the Passover is coming. All right. And so pilgrims are now starting to come down into Jerusalem and they're all talking about Jesus. Well, is he going to come? And some of them are there going, yeah, he's going to come. Now, how do they know he's going to come? How do they know that? They don't even know where he went. He went to Ephraim and he's only there with his disciples. The answer, Luke 17, Luke 17, 11. Check this out. This is really interesting. Luke chapter 17, 11. I'll just read it. Now, it happened as he went to Jerusalem that he passed through the midst of Samaria and Galilee. You might have to read that twice to understand what this said. It says that he's going to Jerusalem, and he passed through the midst of Samaria and Galilee. Let me remind you, Samaria is the blue one in the middle. Galilee is this one up here. Jerusalem's down here. So Luke says he's going to Jerusalem. All right, going to Jerusalem, through Samaria, and through Galilee. Where's Jesus going? Opposite way. He's going the opposite way. Now, why is he doing that? Here's what you got to understand. All right, the Jews are pilgrims coming in the feast of passover right they come from all over the region so you got all these galilean jews coming down for passover but they have this problem there's this big blue thing in the middle it's called samaria the jews did not like samaritans they would not go through this blue area you know where they would go they'd go all the way around through perea to come to jerusalem to avoid the people they disliked it was a well-worn and well-known route so here's what jesus is doing you guys this is crazy he's going up through the area where no one's going he's going to connect into a caravan of people, pilgrims, coming into Jerusalem. He's with them. 
so that he can now begin to create a buzz with a bunch of people with him that are coming to the Passover about, um, about the, um, the Lazarus resurrection, right? They're with him, and they're going, wait, this is, are, you, are, you, are you the guy? And, and he's talking about that. And, and along the way, he's doing, he's doing uh, miracles. He's doing things. If you read through the scriptures, you come across the healing of the ten lepers, right? That's during that time. He comes across the, the rich young ruler and gives him counsel. He uh, meets Zacchaeus even. Um, and then and when he gets down to Jericho here, which is really close. Uh, is it over here? There we go. Right, right there is Jericho, almost to Jerusalem. He, um, he meets uh, Bartimaeus, blind man, and heals him. Okay? And then it brings us back to John chapter 12. We're told that six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany. So here's what happened. He'd gone up through here, connected to a caravan of people, right, that are pilgrims coming into Jerusalem for the feast. And he gets here to Jericho. He heals this guy, and they're going toward Jerusalem. And then he goes on down to Bethany, just below Jerusalem. Jerusalem's right there. He goes down to here. Where'd all the pilgrims go? Jerusalem. So that explains why you have a whole bunch of people, big crowd of people. In John chapter 12, verse 9, a great many of the Jews that knew that he was there. And they just spent a couple weeks with Jesus traveling on the road, talking about Lazarus and the resurrection, asking all the questions. He's doing miracles with them. And they get to Jerusalem, and now they have the answer everyone wants to know. Jesus is coming to the Passover. How do you know? He, he was just with us. He just made a little detour. He's going to Bethany, but he will be here. Because it says they knew that he was there. And guess what? Bethany is only two miles away. That's a Sabbath day's journey. He could just be there in no time at all. So he's there, hundreds of people in Jerusalem. They're all talking it up. And guess what? What are they ready to do? What are they ready to do now that, that they've seen that and heard about the resurrection of Lazarus, this, this huge group of people? They're ready to say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus said, I can't go to Jerusalem until that happens. It's the, heli uh, the resurrection of Lazarus that changes that. And so in John chapter 12, you get here. We read this at the beginning. The next day, verse 12, a great multitude that had come to the feast when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem from all those other hundreds that had traveled with them. They took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him and they cried, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. And that is a fulfillment of Psalm 118. Psalm 118, verse 25. Save now, I pray. That's Hosanna. O Lord, O Lord, I pray, send now prosperity. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. And it's interesting because it doesn't only fulfill the prophecy there of Psalm 118, it fulfills Jesus' own prophecy in Luke 13, right? When he said, I won't go back until they're ready to say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But what about verse 14? I mentioned it earlier. Jesus, when he had found a young donkey, sat on it. <laughs> As it is written, fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. That just sounds lucky, right? Jesus is just walking into Jerusalem. Oh, there's a donkey. Oh, good thing, because that, you know, solves another, fulfills another uh, prophecy. It needed to do that. <laughs> well, just one last look at another gospel. It's Mark chapter 11. We find that that's not the case. That's actually Jesus orchestrating that as well. In Mark chapter 11, we get this account, and we'll be wrapping up here with this. Mark 11, now when they drew near Jerusalem to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, and he said to them, go into the village opposite you, and as soon as you've entered it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has sat. Loose it and bring it. And if anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it. And immediately he will send it here. So they went their way and found the colt tied by the door outside on the street, and they loosed it. But some of those who stood there said to him, what are you doing loosing the colt? And they spoke to them just as Jesus had commanded, so they let him go. And then they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their clothes on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their clothes on the road, and others cut down leafy branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And then those who went before and those who followed cried out, saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the kingdom of our father David that comes in the name of the Lord Hosanna in the highest. And so there you have another scripture fulfilled. It's Zechariah 9, 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. 
And then he just retires to Bethany for the night, we're told. Not um, Perea. He doesn't run off to Perea. He doesn't go to Samaria or uh, to Galilee. He stays close by. And you might remember, I told you that the minute he does this, the end is near. Jesus stays now. He stays in Bethany because this is exactly what needed to happen. He had to fulfill scripture. He had to fulfill his own prophecy. Enter Jerusalem at a time where people were ready to declare himself, declare him Messiah as he presented himself Messiah. Because he could have gone there and presented himself as Messiah. No one could have seen him. The religious leaders could have grabbed him, arrested him, and killed him, right? Been done. So he's orchestrated this very carefully, very methodically, even to the point of the traveling all the way up and coming back down. And now he's just two miles away. Now, here's my question as we close today. Jesus has entered Jerusalem. All these people has de- have declared him as the, the Messiah. He's publicly declared that now. There's no going back on that. But you given that praise and that adoration that he's receiving from the people, it's Sunday. How can you explain that by Friday, the very same people will be crying out, crucify him, crucify him? The short answer is Monday and Tuesday. You're going to need to tune in to the Passion Week studies this week. Monday, what he does on Monday and what he does on Tuesday. It's not, he's not just hanging around. He's not just doing very, very specific that he uh, move things and make things happen so that the religious leaders, these divided groups, would come together for one purpose, and that is to put Jesus on the cross by the hand of the Romans. Jesus is able to accomplish that through the little bit of work that he does on Monday and Tuesday. I also want you to think about this in light of what we read at the beginning of Revelation chapter 7. We know that those people were declaring him, you know, to be the Messiah, Hosanna, save now. You, you bring salvation, yet they, they didn't really believe that, did they? It, it wasn't really there. It's not what they really believed about Jesus. And in Revelation 7, we see people that really do believe that about Jesus. There would be people in heaven holding uh, palm branches and, and screaming out, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And I guess my question to you as you just prepare for this week and think about these things, do you really believe that salvation belongs to the Lamb? Or do you believe, like maybe three other people did, that salvation can come to you by some other way? Because let me just tell you, there is no other way. Jesus is the only way. And what Jesus has done is carefully orchestrated things so that he would arrive at the right time that would fulfill scripture, but also put himself on that cross. Why would he do that? Because he loves you. Because he loves you. So let's think about that this week. Let's be in careful thought and prayer as we contemplate the steps of Jesus this week. And, and it's not also a contemplation to be so uh, mournful. Uh, it's not a depressing week because, well, Sunday's coming. Amen. Let me pray. God, thank you so much for your word to us today. We thank you for, uh, Lord, making scripture so clear to us, so detailed, so incredible when we study your word that we could see, Lord, uh, just how carefully you you worked all these things to, to, to work out to, to, to just ultimately your glory, like you said, when you said this is not unto death, the sickness of Lazarus, that ultimately this will be to glorify the Son of God. Lord, we just pray that you be with your people this week as we reflect upon these important things. Lord, as we follow the steps of Jesus all the way up to that cross, I pray that we'd be mindful to really reflect upon the importance of the cross, the need for that. And Lord, also look forward to Sunday when you rose again, death defeated, sin conquered. Oh, Lord, what a tremendous week you have before us to reflect upon. I pray that you bless our time. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.